0: I'm going to start off with a question, and it's a question that you don't have to raise your hands to, because I think we will probably all relate to it, but how many of you at one point or another in your life have just said, I am done with people, (laughs) right? Don't raise your hands, (laughs) because mine would go up too. Um, I am just so done with people. Like, I love my job, but it's the people that get me down, you know? (laughs) And this can actually happen with born-again Christians, believe it or not, sometimes too. It's just like, oh, people are so hard. I'm just going to go back to my house, live in my little family with my little people and call it good. Like, peace out, y'all. But I'm done. Um, we all have been there. And Elijah has been there. And we're going to take a look at Elijah this morning. But Elijah had convinced himself that he was the only one left on the planet Earth that loved the Lord God still. And he had convinced himself that he was it. And he was just done. And he went running for the hills. And so that is where we're going to take ourselves this morning. So you can open your Bibles to First Kings chapter 19. And while you're turning to chapter 19 of First Kings, before we jump into chapter 19 in our text this morning, I do need to give to you just a little bit of prior knowledge of what just happened in chapter 18. And chapter 18 is what Elijah is probably most known for. It's what makes all of the Sunday school lessons. It is a big showdown on Mar- Mount Carmel. It is where... Elijah goes before King Ahab and all the prophets of Baal. And he challenges them and said, you know what? I am sick of you people wavering between two gods. Pick one. So let's go up to the mountain. And if Baal is God, he will answer in fire. But if God, Yahweh, is God, he will answer in fire. So they go up to the mountain, and mo- most of you probably have heard this story. But of course, you know what happens. Baal is a false god, so clearly he does not answer with fire. But God does. And he falls in fire. He licks up even all the water around the altar. And then Elijah, in supernatural strength and power, actually slays and kills all of the prophets of Baal that were there. So talk about a literal and spiritual mountaintop experience. This has just happened in Elijah's life. Okay. And then, um, God gives him supernatural strength to even outrun, uh, Ahab, uh, and he outruns him through supernatural strength. Uh, I could just go on and on and on about the supernatural provision that Elijah has seen in his lifetime. And this was just one instance where he got to taste and experience this. So this is what happened in chapter 18. That's not where we're at this morning. But you have to understand that that's where he's coming from right now. And in chapter 19 is where we're going to pick up. And we're going to start reading. Now Ahab told Jezebel... Okay, Ahab and Jezebel are like, if the evil prince and the evil princess got married in Disney movies, this is it. I mean, they are truly evil. It says earlier in Kings that Ahab was did more evil in the sight of the Lord than any other king before him. So these two are quite the pair. Sorry, I'll keep reading. Now, Ahab and Jezebel, everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword— So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. What is that? A death threat. She's like, we're coming to get you, just like you got my prophets of Baal. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down underneath it and prayed that he just might die. I have had enough is what he says to the Lord. Take my life. I am no better than any of my ancestors and then he lay down under a bush and fell asleep. Okay, so here he is. He gets a death threat from Jezebel and he ran for his life, a response in fear. And he only gets a day into the wilderness before he's like, "You know what? Psh, I'm done. I'm going to find this bush, Lord, just take me home. I I can't continue." I have a map up there to kind of show his journey, but uh, he, you know, gets to Beersheba, okay? So he runs to Beersheba, and then from Beersheba, he sets out on a journey to try to go all the way down to Mount Sinai. But he only starts into his journey from Beersheba for just a day, and he's already exhausted. He's done spiritually, mentally, physically. He's spent, and he just cries out to the Lord. I've just had enough. Like I'm just weary, and he finds a bush, and that's where he decides that he's just he's ready to die. Um, there, actually, he had quite the trek ahead of him if he was actually going to make it to Mount Sinai, which he does in a second here. But it's a 200 mile trek there, a 200 mile trek for him to get to the mountain of God. So that's where he's at right now. We're going to keep reading. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and he drank and then laid down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank again. Strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached... The mountain Horeb or Mount Sinai, two different names for that mountain. Then he came into a cave and spent the night. I love, one thing I love about the first part of this this chapter is that even though Elijah initially reacted in fear and started running for his life, even though he's exhausted and sort of irrational and uh, emotional, He's actually on his way to a mountain that was just known for the presence of God. He's on his way, even though he's had it with the people, he's convinced himself he's the only one left. He still, still as a man of God, is going towards that mountain. He knows that that mountain is known for, one, he knows that he's going to be able to physically live there and hide in a cave, But secondly, he would have known that this is the mountain of God where Moses met the Lord. I mean, this is where his ancestors met the presence of God. And so he is on a journey to meet the Lord. Uh, But he doesn't even make it a day in the desert. And the next picture is a picture of sort of what this area looks like. Um, Look at that. This is actually an aerial view, like a little bit from up top of Mount Sinai, like where his cave would have been, kind of just looking out. Look how vast and desolate and rocky and hilly and barren this land is. I mean, I know he was already, the poor man was already exhausted, but this desert will kill anyone, right? I mean, that's what it looks like to me. So he's out. This is, this is his terrain. That he is traveling through. And um, I I guess this is not what I pictured. You know when you hear the story. You read the story in the Bible. When you do the Sunday school lessons. I guess I hadn't pictured the wilderness of Mount Sinai quite like this. Um, This is lonely. This is hard terrain to come. You know take out on, even if you were physically and emotionally in a good place. Um, I don't know what's worse, this or a Minnesota winter. I mean, I know it just, have you ever just thought for a second about there were actually ancestors that came to this land and decided to stay? I mean, what were they thinking? And then they just decide, yeah, that's okay. It's six months of winter in here. That's no big deal. Six months of winter? Why not? Let's put our stakes down here, you know? Who thought that? And then you look at places that are deserts, too. Like, I don't know if you've been to Arizona. Arizona is great in the winter. It's fantastic, right? It's sunny. It's warm. It's 70. But have you ever been to Arizona in the summer? It's awful, I mean that there's no vegetation. It's a desert dry. Uh, there's no water and there's no rain, but some brilliant dude a long time ago said, yeah, let's, let's go ahead and stay here. Who does that? And that's what I think this place is. It's like, what? Wow. Well, anyway, so you have a desert. It's tough. It's awful in its own way, but Elijah is already burnt out before he even faces this. That's why he gets one day in and finds a bush and says, I've had enough. Um, so we're going to keep reading in 19, chapter 19. And I stopped at verse 10, so let's keep going. So here he is. He found his cave, okay? He finally made it. He got strengthened by the angel. He found his cave, Um He got strengthened by the angel of the Lord. Here he is in the cave, and this is what happens next. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said to him again, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again with the same thing. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, and they've torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, go back the way you came. We'll continue, but just hold up right there. Okay, have you ever been in a pity party with the Lord before? <laughs> right? And you're just pleading your place, and Elijah did it twice. God asked him the question Twice. And he did it twice i 'm here, and i 'm the only one and uh, you know he did that twice before the Lord, and then the lord answers he doesn 't rebuke him, that <laughs> this is the last thing that Elijah wants to hear the first like sentence out of the lord 's mouth. Go back the way you came really didn 't you hear me, Lord? Go back there? did I just tell you there 's no one left, right, and so you 're not going to win an argument with the lord, but that is not what Elijah wanted to hear out of the mouth of the Lord. The first sentence, Elijah, let's go back the way you came. <laughs> Shoot, okay. So, but it gets better because the Lord follows with great encouragement. So the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshai, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from um, Abel-Meholah, to seed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death anyone who escapes the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. I love the way the Lord answers Elijah with first a gentle whisper. Elijah has seen the extreme hand of God in previous experiences in his life. I mean, he's been fed by a bird. He, um, the power came upon him and he raised a boy from the dead. I mean, he's seen the fire and the wind and the rain. He's seen it all. He's seen it all. This is just a normal uh, day in the life of Elijah is the mighty hand of God. But in this time, in this place in his life, when he is so tired and so fed up and so burnt out, the Lord chooses to appear to him in a gentle whisper and it's comforting. And though he says to go back the way you came, the next part of his instruction to Elijah actually involves three things. Direction, a renewed mission, and encouragement. That's how God meets Elijah right here. He gives him a direction, and then he gives him an assignment that would be a renewed passion for him, right? He's not done in his ministry, and he's supposed to go anoint new leaders. He's supposed to go back and anoint these new leaders, these new men of God to carry out the mission of the Lord. And that had to give him a renewed passion in his heart. You know, it's kind of like when you get to the place where you think you're just done in ministry, period. You don't have to be in full-time ministry. I mean, just in your work, in your family, in your schools, in your environments. And you just feel like you're done. And then the Lord says, not so fast. Go back there. Now do this, this and this, right? And it had to it had to awaken something in Elijah. Say, ah, I'm not done yet. And then he gives him the encouragement, and the encouragement is a fact. There are actually seven thousand people. Seven thousand people that have not forsaken the Lord and have not worshipped Baal. That had to have been just music to his ears. I mean, I don't know what he was doing when he heard that, but I could see myself crying. What? And if he would have remembered and not been so irrational in his fear, he would have remembered his friend Obadiah, who kind of told him that a little while ago, that Obadiah had hid, hid God's prophets in the caves. And he was told that at one point. But anyway, so there were... Actual believers in God at that time in hiding who had not forsaken the Lord. So God comes to Elijah with direction, with renewed passion, with a new mission to anoint these new leaders and a fact, a fact. There are 7,000 people still there, Elijah. And I think that's the way the Lord often talks to us and corrects us. He usually uses the word of God with a fact, right? Actually, Casey, Go back, do this, and by the way, you're my beloved child of God. By the way, I have plans and purposes for you, and it's not to harm you, right? He usually gives you a word from the word to say, ah, uh aha, I can't argue with that. That is a fact from the Lord God Almighty. So this is how the Lord, you know, speaks to Elijah and... And Elijah obeys. That, that, we're we're going to stop here in scripture, but if you continue to read the story, story in 19. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha. It was that, okay, he's back on the saddle and he's going back to find his young leaders in anoint them. And so... One thing that is super interesting about this portion of scripture in Elijah's life from 19, what we just read, is that in previous times of Elijah's life, this common phrase would come in previous portions of scripture. It would say, the word of the Lord came to him. The word of the Lord came to him. And every time the word of the Lord would come to Elijah, he would obey Okay these were like major moves in his life. Elijah lived in a time where talk about persecution the the believers of God I always have to catch myself when I't say Christians, but this is pre Jesus Christ um, on the cross. so believers in God, believers in Yahweh this is a time that they were being extremely persecuted and killed right and so um in this time, Elijah was used to hearing the word of the Lord and then obeying. He was a man on the run his entire life, essentially, uh, and getting new missions all the time. In uh, chapter 17, 2, the word of the Lord came to Elijah and tells him to go into the wilderness and hide east of the Jordan. This is the portion of time where Elijah is in hiding And that God provides him food by the mouth of a bird, a raven. Okay? So, but you see, Elijah didn't hide on his own. The Lord told him to go into hiding. Um, In 177, the word of the Lord came to him again and said, you know, go and live in a city with a widow. The next part of his, you know, journey was to go into a city and find a widow. And he lived with a widow and her son. And again, it was because the Lord told him to do that. Okay? Again, in chapter 18, do you see the theme? The word of the Lord came and told him to go to present himself to Ahab. So the Mount Carmel showdown. It was because the Lord told him to go. But in 19, did we see the Lord tell him to run? No. There's a threat from Jezebel. And Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Okay. So he, when he came to Beersheba, he even left his servant there and he kept running. This was not something that God had told him to do. And that's very clear that it was not a move that the Lord said, Elijah, now it's time to run for your life to Beersheba and beyond. This was not what the Lord had told him. It was just a reaction. And this is what he did. Every major decision until that point in his life, he got a clear word from the Lord. See, we are capable of doing exactly what Elijah did. One day we can see the mighty work of the Lord God in miraculous ways. One day I can be worshiping in church and Jody's healed. I can witness a miracle. One day I can go on a mission trip and see the sweetest things of the Lord. You know, and we can be on those mountaintops experiences. And the very next day, if we are not walking in the spirit, we can get full of fear. And react in our flesh, right? Sometimes we put these Elijah's, Moses's, uh, Paul's, you know, on a pedestal. And we think, how could have they done that? You know, we do that with the Israelites, too. What were you thinking? Like, here's this man that's been fed by a bird, raised the dead, had the Mount Carmel showdown. And then the very, I don't know, you know, I, I didn't study what the time. But in the very next few days of his life... Runs in fear. Right away, reacted in the flesh. But I know I've done that. Absolutely I have. Because when we are not walking in the spirit, we are then vulnerable to the fears of man, right? And that is exactly what happened to Elijah. But I love how the Lord is there with Elijah, even in his fleshly response. The Lord didn't leave him. He didn't say, well, geez, Casey, you blew it again. Good luck. No, that's not our Lord. He was there, and he fed him. He gave him food, gave him shelter, gave him strength. He came in the whisper and encouraged him. He met with him on the mountain, even in his fleshly response, because that's the love of the Father for us. He's not like, well, good luck then. It's not the love of the Father. See, there's a difference between God-ordained isolation and self-imposed isolation. I mentioned it before, but there are so many biblical accounts of God actually calling us to go into a period of isolation, Previously in Elijah's life, God actually told him to go hide alone. It was in the God-ordained time for a purpose. It was to protect Elijah. And then God was going to provide him with food and water in miraculous ways. It was for a period of time. But then there's other times in our lives where we go through these periods of self-isolation. And those are the times that we really need to do some self-reflecting and say, hey, am I isolated because I've made choices to do so? Or did God actually call me to a period of withdrawal? I want to compare the two. I want to compare the two here on a slide. God-ordained isolation versus self-imposed isolation. In Scripture, biblically, if we see a time where God has said, go, go, Hide. Flee. Withdraw. Pray. Fast. It's for a period of time. There's there's, there's a period of time. It's not the rest of your life. Self-imposed isolation. You choose to isolate from people in a family. You choose to isolate from people. And it's maybe forever in your mind. You're just burnt out and you just, you check out. And you don't really have a plan to return. It was just, you've decided, so. Um, A God-ordained isolation is for a specific purpose. It's seeking God's voice. It's for a period of time of fasting. It's maybe a, a move across country. You know, sometimes you physically move, and it takes a little bit to get established in a community. It might be a new move. Or it's for a purpose of renewal, just meet with God. Okay? That's a God ordained. A self-imposed isolation is just c- completely reactionary. You are reacting to a certain circumstance and you've decided you're going to isolate. A God ordained isolation is l- always looking upward. You're, you're, you're withdrawing from people and from so- society for a period of time to seek the Lord. A self-imposed isolation is you're always looking inward. You're usually looking inward. You're usually stuck in your hurt, and your insecurity, and you've chosen to withdraw because it's the easiest thing to do. It's inward and not upward. Those are the differences between these two responses that you can even see in Elijah's life. Before, he was hiding in the grace of God, being sustained by God, and here he is hiding because of fear. And he reacted. Uh, the Bible warns believers about the dangers of isolating. He God warns us in other places of Scripture about the dangers of isolating. Proverbs eighteen, one says, one who has isolated himself seeks his own desires. He rejects all sound judgment. In Ecclesiastes four, nine through ten. This is often used in weddings, but there's such a bigger, broader meaning to this. Uh, Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help him. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Pity the man that falls alone and has no one to help him up. You see this sometimes, the second scripture, Ecclesiastes, you see this You know, when you go to that funeral of a friend who's reached a lot of people, who've lived a life in community and service and love to another person, isn't it fun to hear the people share of how that person touched lives? From friends to workplace to family. But then, unfortunately, there are the people that pass away who have almost no one in their life no friends. They kind of lived entirely isolated. It's so sad. And that's what this scripture sort of points out. If you're alone, who's going to help you up? You might not think you need help. You've deceived yourself into thinking, I don't need anybody. But that's actually a lie. You do. Um, in Proverbs, it warns us that someone who like rejects all sound judgment. This is one I see so often. Especially right now, it's like we've convinced ourselves that we can just be a Christian and follow Christ and join online worship for the rest of our lives. Like we can just plug into YouTube, we can plug into our favorite, you know, preachers and read our favorite books and then just be a Christian in our own house forever. Peace out people, I don't need you. I got my Bible preacher online and I'm good. That's a lie. It's actually not how we were created. I mean, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, we were not created to be alone. We were not created to fill the Great Commission alone, to go and make disciples of all nations. That was not supposed to be done alone. We are supposed to be in community with other believers in Jesus Christ. It's our very design. From Genesis through Revelation, do you know that we're called the army of God for a reason? Have you ever known an army of one man? (laughs) No. We're supposed to be in fellowship with other believers. It is our very design. And when we get to a point where we're so isolated that we don't even hear sound judgment anymore, we've, you can, there, I mean, there's entire, churches around the nation to believe they are the only church that has it figured out. Create websites and books and the whole nine yards. We are the only church that have this thing figured out. What error to get yourself so isolated that you believe you are without any error. What a dangerous place to be. We got to be in fellowship with other believers in Jesus because guess what? the ones that do this well and maybe a life group or a mentor or someone you have an actual relationship with they can correct you in a loving way i think god gave us a really good example with elijah on how to gently correct didn't he actually no but go back anoint these leaders and here's a truth bomb you know he gave elijah a truth Bomb. And that's what he does to us. Actually, Casey, you're wrong here, but this is what the Lord says over you. And a good friend can correct you. A good friend can correct you in love. And we absolutely need that in our lives. And why do we, why do we isolate? Why do we as human beings isolate? What are the reasons for that isolation? Fear of man. Fear of man and rejection are huge, huge. I just sat with two people this week, common threads here. Have some acquaintances from afar, but no one to pray with, to speak truth with, to get real with, to get raw with. That's sad, but it's a... it's like a defense mechanism, right? Fear of man and rejection are huge. Past hurts. You know, if you get rejected once, if you get really hurt in a relationship, totally normal to sort of go, not doing that again. Not putting myself out there again, because I don't want to feel that hurt, right? Or tired. Maybe we're just exhausted physically emotionally spiritually maybe you have been in ministry maybe you've been a believer in christ for years and years and years and years and you're sort of looking at god and going have i done something wrong because there sure has a lot of trials in my life you know we look at elijah's life and we're like oh he got fed by a bird do you know how gross that is Oh, he got to, you know, wonder and God provided for him. Well, yeah, but did you see the picture of where he was? What a wretched place. I mean, like, sometimes we look at these men of God in the Bible and sort of paint this like rosy picture like, oh, God, pr- God did provide for them. He is everything we need. But does that mean that it's always fun? No. Does that mean we're not going to encounter pain and blisters on our feet and, you know, sunburns and hurt. No, no. And that's, you know, that is the, what we see in Elijah is that, you know what? He was wore out. He's going, God, have I, well, he didn't say this, but we could say this, God, have I done something wrong? Like I've been steadfast for you. For so many years, why am I experiencing so much trial? Paul had those moments. Geez, Paul is like the most, you know, even, you know, he was famous. He went everywhere and spread the good news of Jesus Christ, right? And that man encountered more trials than anyone, I think, in the Bible. And so a trial is not the evidence of lack of faith. And I think we need to come to that place in our Christian walk to almost expect trials of many kinds, right? Yeah. And um, we're going to land here today. We're going to go back to that side of how God corrected, gently corrected Elijah. Because that's really the point I want to really draw on today. Is that, If you're here this morning and you have checked out emotionally from other people, if you're here this morning and you have convinced yourself that, God, there's no one as weird as me. (laughs) No one could possibly love me. I must be the weird woman in the congregation. Or I must be, uh, you know, um, God, I'm not like her, so no one's going to like me. I couldn't be a life group leader. I'm just too whatever. If you've somehow disqualified yourself from ministry because you are believing a lie from the enemy that you are somehow the only one that feels that, that's a lie. That's where Elijah was. He had believed a lie. I'm the only one left. And you know what I love about the Lord God is he comes with such gentleness and he doesn't join him in his pity. A good friend doesn't join you in your pity. Oh, you poor, poor thing. You're just, oh, oh, this is awful. You know, God doesn't do that with him. But he also doesn't reject the way he's feeling, right? He meets him where he's at in a really loving way. And then he encourages him with a fact and a truth that penetrates his heart, that gets him back on fire and back on his feet and out to anoint Elisha. And that's what God does to us. So if you're here today and you're just feeling burnt out, tired, you, you don't have a close friend. You know you're in a place in your life that you have people around you here this morning, but you don't even know who you'd call. Like, when the stuff hits the fan, you don't know who you would call. I just want to encourage you to reach out to your heavenly father and give him your heart. He can take, he can take your wailing before him like he did with Elijah twice. Give your heart to the father and just say, here's where I'm at. I feel not accepted. I feel like I'm somehow weirder than everybody else. I feel like I'm not worthy. Give it to the Lord and he's going to come and he's going to give you fresh direction. He's going to give you a word from the word of God to remind you whose you are, a child of the king. And then take a baby step. Take a baby step out of your isolation That's what I encourage two people just this very week. What is the first thing, what's one thing you could do this week to physically take a step outside of your isolation? And then next week, I'm going to ask them to do one more, and then one more. And then pretty soon, you'll find yourself in a place of community that is so much better than being alone. So I want to encourage you with that word this morning. Who are your people? You don't have to have a ton, but make sure you have at least one. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that you teach us and love us. God, I thank you for the way that even when Elijah was running in fear, Oh, you love him. Oh, you love us, God. There is just this unconditional love of the Father, God, that it doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter what we'll do tomorrow. You are right there with us in a gentle whisper. And now, God, as believers in Jesus Christ, we get the Holy Spirit inside of us. So the Holy Spirit there is always there reminding us of who we are in Christ. And God, I pray right now in the name of Jesus, that you would break the lie over anyone here that they are meant to live alone, an easy little life in their house all alone. God, we were made for community. And God, I pray you would draw us out of our safe places and to a rich environment of community with each other. We pray all these things that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Have a good week.